What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, what's new? Absolutely nothing. My life is so quiet and mundane that I have done literally nothing since yesterday, except for work. From home, which is like doing nothing. Uh, the tree guy still won't call me back, so that's annoying. Won't even answer, or anything. He broke up with me, and he's ghosting me right now. So that's frustrating, since I have dying trees I'm supposed to take care of. Uh, I got a meeting with my supervisor, which he had to change the time, so he said, let's just do it over the phone, so you don't have to rush in. And I said, great. I picked up my kids, but didn't have enough time to drive back home. So I had to stand around my ex-wife's house, where I was picking up the last kid, and take the call there, which was odd. He had an important emergency happen. I said, you can just let me go. I think we've talked about everything we need to talk about. He said, no, no, you're important. This is your time. So if you could just hold for a minute, I'll try to take care of this, and then... We'll get back to talking. Fine. Fifteen minutes later, I'm still on hold. And tweeting about it. And he, uh, finally got back on and said, I'm gonna have to let you go. Which is something I had offered fifteen minutes earlier. And, uh, so there's that. A little deflating. On top of that, uh, I took a walk. So there was that. I walked for a full hour and still didn't make the rings on my stupid Apple Watch. So I'll just be fat forever. And that's pretty much it. Oh, I decided to make the name of this little segment uh, called Leaves of Glen. Um, because it reminds me of Walt Whitman, which reminds me of the time I was reading Leaves of Grass while taking a, a dump at my mom's house while in high school and left the book there. And then mom told me to keep the book in there because she thought it looked nice. <laughs> so then uh, my dad came over to visit at one point and saw the book there. And when he came out, he said, Ooh, I've never been in such a classy bathroom that had a copy of Leaves of Grass in it. So that is the segment. Uh, is The new name is Leaves of Glen. And I have to think up some sort of cover art for it now, which is going to be dang near impossible. And that's it. I have my kids upstairs, and I decided I'm going to try and record a podcast even with them here, and it feels creepy. I feel like they're listening to me. And I don't like that. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Tomorrow I record another Book Boys with Ben. 
and we'll see how that goes. Oh, and a friend of mine is with his son at a Boy Scout thing for the next couple of days. He, his son is the one that I am convinced my youngest daughter is going to marry. I love this kid. I love them together. I want to be at their Christmases as family. But there's girls allowed at this thing, apparently. And they're all attacking this beautiful, beautiful boy which is driving me up the wall. He's sending me pictures of how they're all wrestling with him and trying to get his attention and laughing at all his jokes. So I'm a little heartbroken that he's taunting me that I'm going to lose my chance to be a part of that family and that my daughter can finally be happy for the first time in her life. Yeah, this just feels weird. I feel like I'm whispering. I feel like I can't be as annoying as I normally am because my kids are up there just listening to everything I'm saying. It's creeping me out. Well, let's get on with the story. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you, and maybe your kid in the back seat. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Okay, so where did we leave off last time? In chapter 17. Uh, Ernest... He's in the Senate, trying to pass poorly titled bills. Uh, It looks like he possibly threw a bomb on himself, a very weak bomb, all for show. Uh, Or someone just made a poorly made bomb and threw it at him. Of course, this is a time in history when bombs were the way to kill people, as opposed to just like a gun. So, um... Uh, the Grangers aren't doing so hot and no, and neither are the Socialists. Uh, Ernest is accused of throwing his own bomb and he wants hell to be real. So we've learned all these things. It wasn't the best chapter. I was kind of hoping the book would pick up. Uh, and I really would think it would be great if the story ends up where it turns out Ernest is not perfect and he's the complete opposite, where he's constantly sabotaging things on purpose just so he looks right. But I doubt these kind of things are going to pan out. I think the book's just going to keep going the way it's going till it ends. And it is hell on earth. So with that, chapter 18, In the Shadow of Sonoma. Of myself, during this period, there is not much to say. For six months I was kept in prison, though charged with no crime. I was a suspect in italics, a word of fear that all revolutionists were soon to come to know. But our own na- nascent, na- nascent <laughs> secret service, I don't know why I'm hung up on that one, was beginning to work. By the end of my second month in prison, one of the jailers made himself known as a revolutionist in touch with the organization. Several weeks later, Joseph Parkhurst, the prison doctor who had just been appointed, proved himself to be a member of one of the fighting groups. 
Thus, throughout the organization of the oligarchy, our own organization, web-like and spidery, was insinuating itself. And so I was kept in touch with all that was happening in the world without. And furthermore, every one of our imprisoned leaders was in contact with brave comrades who masqueraded in the livery of the Iron Heel. Though Ernest lay imprisoned 3,000 miles away on the Pacific coast, I was in unbroken communication with him, and our letters passed regularly back and forth. The leaders, in prison and out, were able to discuss and direct the campaign. It would have been possible within a few months to have effected the escape of some of them, but since imprisonment proved no bar to our activities, it was decided to avoid anything premature. Fifty-two congressmen were in prison, and fully three hundred more of our leaders. It was planned that they should be delivered simultaneously. If part of them escaped, the vigilance of the oligarchs might be aroused so as to prevent the escape of the remainder. On the other hand, it was held that a simultaneous jail delivery all over the land would have immense psychological influence on the proletariat. It would show our strength and give confidence. So it was arranged, when I was released at the end of six months, that I was to disappear and prepare a secure hiding place for Ernest. To disappear was in itself no easy thing. No sooner did I get my freedom than my footsteps began to be dogged by the spies of the Iron Heel. It was necessary that they should be thrown off track, and that I should win to California. It is laughable the way this was accomplished. Already, the passport system, modeled on the Russian, was developing. I dared not cross the continent in my own character. It was necessary that I should be completely lost if ever I was to see Ernest again. For by trailing me after he escaped, he would be caught once more. Again, I could not disguise myself as a proletarian and travel. There remained the disguise of a member of the oligarchy. While the arch-oligarchs were no more than a handful, there were myriads of lesser ones of the type, say, of Mr. Wixon's men, worth a few millions, who were adherents of the arch-oligarchs. The wives and daughters of these lesser oligarchs were legion, and it was decided that I should assume the disguise of such a one. A few years later, this would have been impossible, because the passport system was to become so perfect that no man, woman, nor child in all the land was unregistered and unaccounted for in his or her movements. When the time was ripe, the spies were thrown off my track. An hour later, Avis Everhard was no more. At that time, one Felice Van Verdigahan, Verdigahan, accompanied by two maids and a lapdog, with another maid for the lapdog, entered a drawing room on a Pullman, and a few minutes later was speeding west. The three maids who accompanied me were revolutionists, Two were members of the fighting groups, and the, the third, Grace Hollowbrook, entered a group the following year, and six months later was executed by the Iron Heel. She it was who waited upon the dog, 
Of the other two, Bertha Stoll disappeared 12 years later, while Anna Royalston, these names are insane, still lives and plays an increasingly important part in the revolution. Without adventure, we crossed the United States to California. When the train stopped at 16th Street Station in Oakland, we alighted, and there, Felice Van Verdighan, <laughs> with her two ma maids, her lapdog and her lapdog's maid, disappeared forever. The maids, guided by trusty comrades, were led away. Other comrades took charge of me. Within half an hour after leaving the train, I was on board a small fishing boat and out on the waters of San Francisco Bay. The winds baffled, and we drifted aimlessly the greater part of the night. But I saw the lights of Alcatraz where Ernest lay, and found comfort in the thought of nearness to him. By dawn, what with the rowing of the fishermen, we made the Marin Islands, where we lay in hiding all day, and on the following night, swept on by a flood tide and a fresh wind, we crossed San Pablo Bay in two hours and ran up Petaluma Creek. Here, horses were ready, and another comrade, without delay, we were away through the starlight. I don't know why I got hung up on that sentence. To the north, I could see the loom of Sonoma Mountain, toward which we rode. We left the old town of Sonoma to the right and rode up a canyon that lay between outlying buttresses of the mountains. The wagon road became a, a wood road, and the wood road became a cow path, and the cow path dwindled away and ceased among the upland pastures. Straight over Sonoma Mountain we rode. It was the safest route. There was no one to mark our passing. Dawn caught us on the northern brow, and in the gray light we dropped down through Chaparral into Redwood Canyons, deep and warm with the breath of passing summer. It was old country to me that I knew and loved, and soon I became the guide. The hiding place was mine. I had selected it. Oh, she's got agency now at this point. We let down the bars and crossed an upland meadow. Next, we went over a low, oak-covered ridge and descended into a smaller meadow. Again, we climbed a ridge, this time riding under red-limbed madrono, mad, madronos and manzitas, manzanta, I can't, of deeper red. The first rays of the sun streamed upon our backs as we climbed. A flight of quail thrummed off through the thickets. A big jackrabbit crossed their path, leaping swiftly and silently like a deer. And then a deer, a many-pronged buck, the sun flashing red gold from neck and shoulders, cleared the crest of the ridge before us and was gone. We followed his wake of space, then dropped down a zigzag trail that... He dis disdained into a group of noble redwoods that stood about a pool of water murky with the minerals from the mountainside. I knew every inch of the way. Once a writer friend of mine had owned the ranch, but he too had become a revolutionist, though more disastrously than I, for he was already dead and gone. And none knew where nor how. He alone, in the days he had lived, knew the secret of the hiding place for which I was bound. He had brought the ranch for the beauty, 
and paid a round price for it, much to the disgust of the local farmers. He used to tell with great glee how they were wont to shake their heads mournfully at the price, to accomplish ponderously a bit of mental arithmetic, and then to say, But you can't make six percent on it. <laughs> But he was dead now. Nor did the ranch descend to his children. Of all men, it was now the property of Mr. Wixon, who owned the whole eastern and northern slopes of Sonoma Mountain, running from the Spreckles estate, ugh, these names, to the divide of Bennett Valley. Out of it, he had made a magnificent deer park, where over thousands of acres of sweet slopes and glades and canyons. The deer ran almost in primitive wilderness. The people who had owned the soil had been driven away. A state home for the feeble-minded had also been demolished to make room for the deer. To cap it all, Wixon's hunting lodge was a quarter of a mile from my hiding place. This, instead of being a danger, was a I guess my kids are on the move. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where they are now. All right. This, instead of being a danger, was an added security. We were sheltered under the very ages of one of the minor oligarchs. Suspicion, by the nature of the situation, was turned aside. The last place in the world the spies of the Iron Heel would dream of looking for me and for Ernest, when, we, when he joined me, was the Wickerson's Deer Park. We tied our horses among the redwoods at the pool. From a cache behind the hollow rotting log, my companion brought out a variety of things. A 50-pound sack of flour and tinned foods of all sorts, cooking utensils, blankets, a canvas tarpaulin, books and writing material, a great bundle of letters, a five-gallon can of kerosene, an oil stove, and last and most important, a large coil of stout rope. So large was the supply of things that a number of trips would be necessary to carry them to the refuge. But the refuge was very near. Taking the rope and leading the way, I passed through a glade of tangled vines and bushes that ran between the two wooded knolls. The glade ended abruptly at the steep bank of the stream. It was a little stream, rising from springs, and the hottest summer never dried it up. On every hand were tall wooded knolls, a group of them, with all the seeming of having been flung there from some careless titan's hand. There was no bedrock in them. They rose from their bases hundreds of feet, and they were composed of red volcanic earth, the famous wine soil of Sonoma. Though these tiny streams had cut its deep and precipitous channel. And with that, let's... Take a little break to learn about new books coming that I can't ever read. Uh, weirdly, Wish for a Fish, uh, A Cat in the Hat Adventure, by Bonnie Worth. Uh, it's all about sea creatures. So apparently they're still reissuing Cat in the Hat books under new authors. Uh, the cover shows the cat with his hat on the outside of a little glass globe that his head is in to breathe underwater. An apparatus, if you will. He's got two children wearing the similar outfits with little 
flippers, and the cat in the head is shaking hands with a really nervous-looking octopus. So this is something to look forward to. Uh, about Wish for a Fish. Let's learn about it. The cat in the hat, Sally and Dick, take an undersea voyage aboard the SS Undersea Glubber, traveling down from the sunny zone to the dark zone to the trench at the bottom. Captain Cat and his crew get up close and personal with the different life forms found at each level of the ocean. Along the way, they meet sharks and jellyfish and dolphins and manatees, whales, and sea cucumbers, to name just a few, exclamation point. Pretty straightforward. Uh, praise for this book. Coming from Barbara Kiefer, associate professor, reading and literature, Teachers College, Columbia University. There is a big gap between, quote, concept books written for preschoolers and nonfiction that requires fluent reading skills. The Cat in the Hat's learning library books introduce beginning readers to important basic concepts about the natural world. They provide the critical foundations upon which complex facts and ideas can eventually be build. Build? Not built, but just build. Be build. In addition... The Cat in the Hat's Learning Library shows young readers what books can be. Oh, that books can be entertaining and educational at the same time. This is a wonderful series, exclamation point. So that's Barbara Kiefer. Let's learn a little bit about Bonnie Worth, this woman who's taken up the helm of the Cat in the Hat ship. Bonnie Worth is the author of countless books for young readers. Among them, 18 of the Cat in the Hat's Learning Library books, including... Oh, say, can you say dinosaur? <laughs> if I ran the rainforest and oh, say, can you seed? Well, there you go. That's coming out. Doesn't say when. I guess it comes out now. All right. Enjoy. And back to the story. Uh. <clears throat> it was quite a scramble down to the stream bed, and once on the bed we went downstream perhaps a, for a hundred feet, and then we came to a great hole. There was no warning of the existence of the hole, nor was it a hole in the common sense of the word. One crawled through tight, locked briars and branches, and found oneself on the very edge, peering out and down through the green screen. A couple of hundred feet in length and width, it was half of that in depth, possibly because of some fault that had occurred when the knolls were flung together. Oh my god, this is just going on forever. And certainly helped by freakish erosion, the hole had been scooped out in the course of centuries by the wash of water. Nowhere did the raw earth appear. All was garmented by vegetation, from tiny maiden hair to the gold back ferns. Oh my god, I want to skip over this so bad. And mighty redwoods and Douglas spruces. These great trees even sprang out from the walls of the hole. Some leaned over that angles, great 45-degree angles, even though the majority teared up right from the soft and almost perpendicular earth walls. It was a perfect hiding place. No one ever came there. Not even the village boys of Glen Ellen. And this hole existed in the 
bed of a canyon a mile long, or several miles long, it would have been well known. But this was no canyon. From beginning to end, the length of the stream was no more than 500 yards. 300 yards above the hole at the stream took its rise. In a spring at the foot of the flat meadow, 100 yards below the hole, the stream ran out into the open country, joining the main stream and flowing across and rolling over the grass-covered land. My companion took a turn of the rope around a tree, and with me fast on the other end, lowered away. And in no time I was at the bottom. And in but short a while, he had carried all the articles from the cache and lowered them down to me. He hauled the rope up and hid it. And before he went away, called down to me a cheerful parting. Before I go on, I want to say a word for this comrade. John Carlson. <laughs> a humble figure of the revolution. One of the countless faithful ones in the ranks. He worked for Wickeson in the stables near the hunting lodge. In fact, it was on Wixon's horses that he had ridden over Sonoma Mountain for nearly 20 years now. John Carlson has been custodian of the refuge. No thought of disloyalty, I'm sure, has ever entered his mind during all that time. To betray his trust would have been, in his mind, a thing undreamed. He was phlegmatic, stolid, to such a degree that one could not but wonder how the revolution had meant anything to him at all, and yet love of freedom glowed somberly and steadily in his dim soul. In ways, it was indeed good that he was not flighty and imaginative. He never lost his head. He would obey orders and was neither curious nor garrulous. Gar, gar, <laughs> Once I asked how it was that he was a revolutionist. When I was a young man, I was a soldier, was his answer. It was in Germany. They're all young men, must be in the army, so I was in the army. There was another soldier there, too, a young man, too. His father was what you call an agitator, and his father was in jail for least majesty, what you call speaking the truth about the emperor. And the young man, the son, talked with me much about people and work and the robbery of the people by the capitalists. He made me see things in new ways, and I became a socialist. His talk was very true and good, and I have never forgotten. When I came to the United States, I hunted up the socialists. I became a member of a selection section. That was in the day of the SLP. Then, later, when the split came, I joined the local of the SPI. I was work oh, SP. Just SP. I was working in a livery stable in San Francisco then. That was before the earthquake. I have paid my dues for 22 years. I am yet, yet a member, and I yet pay my dues, though... It is very secret now. I will always pay my dues, and when the corporative commonwealth comes, I'll be glad. Left to myself, I proceeded to cook breakfast on the oil stove and to prepare my home. Often, in the early morning or in the evening after dark, Carlson would steal down to the refuge and work for a couple of hours. At first, my home was the tarpaulin. Later... A small tent was put up. 
And still later, when we became assured of the perfect security of the place, a small house was erected. This house was completely hidden from any chance I that might peer down from the edge of the hole. The lush vegetation of that sheltered spot made a natural shield. Also, the house was built against the perpendicular wall, and in the wall itself shored by strong timbers, well-drained and ventilated. We excavated two small rooms. Oh, believe me, we had many comforts. When Biden-Bach, the German terrorist, hid with us some time later, he installed a, a smoke-consuming device that enabled us to sit by crackling wood fires on winter nights. And here I must say a word for the gentle soul terrorist. <laughs> if you can try and guess, be more open-minded about sort of these ideas or concepts. A terrorist is just one you're going to have a tough time with. The job title is literally terrorist, causing terrorists. So gentle soul terrorist is just weird. Than whom there is no comrade in the revolution more fearfully misunderstood. Comrade Bidenbach did not betray the cause, nor was he executed by the comrades as is commonly supposed. This canard, canard was circulated by the creatures of the oligarchy. Comrade Bidenbach was absent-minded and forgetful. He was shot by one of our lookouts at the cave refuge at Carmel, through failure on his part to remember the secret signals. It was all a sad mistake. And that he betrayed his fighting group is an absolute lie. No truer, more loyal man ever labored for the cause. For 19 years now, the refuge that I selected has been almost continuously occupied, and in all that time, with one exception, it has Never been discovered by a, an outsider, and yet it was only a quarter of a mile from Wixen's hunting lodge, and a short mile from the village of Glen Ellen. I was able, always, to hear the morning and evening trains arrive and depart, and I used to set my watch by the whistle at the brickyards. And there you had chapter 18 in the Shadow of Sonoma. What did we learn? We learned that uh, Avis was in prison for quite a long time. Ernest was in a different prison for longer. Uh, prison does nothing to stop the socialists from texting each other. And eventually when Avis is out, she immediately goes into hiding, the whole plan being for nothing political, but just so she can be with Ernest. And thousands of men have lined everything up to allow her to just be with her man. That an entire organization will go over and above and bend backwards for love is breathtaking. She rides by train in different outfits. Lap dogs are a thing, apparently, if you're going to disguise yourself. I wasn't sure if I was very clear on what was going on with that. Uh, they ride trains. They ride wagons. 
They're on boats. Uh, and then a series of horses and uh, trails getting smaller and smaller. It's an entire network, larger than anything that's probably ever happened in history, just to get her to a hole out in a field or alongside the mountains of uh, Sonoma Mountains. And weirdly, it's on her enemy's land, apparently within a mile of his hunting lodge, which doesn't seem smart, but she did it. And uh, you had John Carlson, probably the most boring name out of all the bizarre, bizarre character names in this book. Uh, he was a flibbity gibbet. He was a, a knucklehead. He screwed up and got killed, but he was the lifeline for a while there, constantly bringing down the incredibly long list of items that uh, he would give them on a regular basis. And beyond that, you had Biden Bach or whoever, a friendly terrorist that helped take care of them after that. And uh, there was a long sequence of just page after page describing the land, which makes me think that Jack London must have read some token or something. I don't know if those timelines even line up correctly, but man, that was tedious. Uh, and that was it. It ends with Avis waiting in her hole for sweet, sweet Ernest to arrive. So the book continues to drag on, but we're 60% of the way through. <laughs> And I hope you come back again to uh, Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. <laughs>